My existence as a female person of color is a form of activism. I realize just how much the choice to be an activist is a privilege because so many people don't have that choice. Um, so many people, activism is genuinely like a thing of desperation. It's the only thing that they can do. There's so many different ways that activism could be defined, but anything that is against the system and anyone who doesn't benefit from the system that we live in, I think that existence is a form of activism. So a graphic novel that I did in 2006 called American Born Chinese. Hey, my dad, he said he liked it, but I don't know if he totally understood it though. Because that's one of the things about being an immigrant's kid is that your experience and your parents' and your grandparents' experiences are like three completely different experiences in three completely different kinds of worlds. So we had conversations about it, but I never really got the sense that he knew where I was coming from. But there are things about what he went through that I would never in a million years be able to understand either. You know, the other thing about King is we know him so much from his speeches and this elevated language that you always use when you're talking to like the masses. In Anderson's dramatization, of course, he's a lot more colloquial. He cusses, he's angry, he's frustrated, and that's stuff you don't really see in the elementary school education you get of him. And that's so important for a book like this because not only does it humanize him, it also shows how exhausting and stressful everything that he's going through is. Pope Francis says part of embracing God's mercy is to go through the pain of healing. That's what makes the act of being merciful so difficult because there's going to be a period of extreme, maybe even poignant, maybe even debilitating pain. And yet healing was only possible if we go through that process. So maybe some of these arrested, deferred conversations we are not having because we are afraid of the pain that they will cause, afraid of the pain of healing because we haven't really imagined a world where we have healed because there is something comforting about living in the now, in the conflict, in our own assumptions about others, in our own assumptions about the world, whatever side of the political spectrum you come from. There is a comfort in that. And when we challenge ourselves out of that comfort zone, out of those familiarities, we are in uncharted territory. And that's frightening. San Francisco Chinatown, they would walk off the streets and do the lion dances and the whole shebang. And we didn't have that in the burbs. We just stayed and had family dinners. And we tried to do things like clean the house before the new year, go get haircuts, what people would do back in the old country. I also went to Chinese school on weekends and I remember having celebrations there. But I felt like I was living a secret life. You know, I grew up in a time and place where it was like, we didn't want to wear our Asian-ness on our sleeve, right? I remember we would just take whatever weekend New Year's fell on and celebrate the heck out of it. But I would go back to school the following Monday and never mention it or talk about it with my friends or classmates. It was interesting seeing Chinese New Year from different lenses. Personally, I always found it really embarrassing when people would be like, Gong hei fa choi, gong hei fa choi. And as a Mandarin-speaking mainlander, I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> uh, so during Lunar New Year, there's a lot of different things that you're supposed to like, say to your parents or your elders. And we'd always wish them So those are all like proverbs to tell them, I hope you live a prosperous life. I hope the things that you wish for come true. I hope you stay healthy throughout the new year. 
you're taught to make them forget. And that's the only way you need to do such cases. I didn't do it saying, hey man, I'm the black neurosurgeon here that did it by doing the things that everybody else does, put my head down. But it just felt like it was time to start talking. And honestly, maybe I could have talked about race earlier and it might have hurt me a little bit, but I, I might have done okay. But as a undergrad student, I was outspoken and I, I did say things, but I knew what I needed to do to get to medical school to get into residency. In residency in particular, I did not say a lot about race. Neurosurgery is a very conservative field. It's a very white field, very male as well, and older. So it's very slow to change. There's not a lot of neurosurgeons made up here. And so there's not a lot of young black people running around talking about how their experience is like and how it's, it's different from everyone else. And the next step in, in our parents' mind was like, she needs to get married. <laughs> of and course. like being brown, that's a big no-no when you're single at 30, <laughs> right, in the culture. And this is not the first time I'm hearing this. They wanted to find someone, but they wanted to find someone that was South Asian and they were having such a hard time. And these were pretty qualified people. What auntie's optimized for isn't necessarily what the individual wants. Part of it has to do with the cultural differences. Growing up in India and having a different value system and belief system versus some hybrid of Indian American and trying to figure out what your identity is and what you want doesn't necessarily overlap really well with what the aunties want. It's important for parents and community to be teaching our history. I don't think it's something that we should be relying on the state, the school system, brands, TV, Netflix, or whatever to teach us. The reality with our history is we have to be the ones to tell the story. Whether it was my mother talking about local politics in Ghana or wearing an Afro, the impact of the Black Panthers even before she came to the U.S., just the overall impact of standing up for your rights. This dual relationship where there were people learning from what was going on here in the U.S. and, and vice versa, because the fight against colonization and imperialism wasn't a one-way or an isolated incident. It was happening around the world, wherever Black people were. I actually never wanted to change my name growing up, but it wasn't until I was a professional actress, I was told over and over to change my name to the point where I was up for a very, very big job, the big feature with the studio, one of the leads. And I sat there in my fourth callback and they came in and they said, everybody loves you, but we need you to change your name. Wow. And I really didn't believe that that was going to be the deal breaker and I didn't get the job. And that wasn't the only time. And, and by the way, I didn't change my name and I lost out on a lot of things. I just never felt that that was something I was going to do and I didn't want to compromise that. When you watch war documentaries or documentaries about tyrants like Stalin or Hitler throughout the world, there's always a moment that you say, why didn't anybody do anything to stop this person? How could the rest of this have continued? Where were the people who cared? And we are at that moment. We're on a precipice and people will say, why wasn't more done? And so we all have to be doing what we can do individually on a small scale and everybody can be doing something. And this is about Ukraine right now, but it may not stay about Ukraine. And so not doing anything is not an option. We didn't anticipate how far that would go. It's almost like, well, this will stop. They will stop at Crimea. They never did. They would stop with Donbass. They never did. We refused to believe that somebody would do such a thing as invade a neighboring country. But for me, I feel like my life will always be divided into the before and after. When I found out that Ukraine was at war, that was just a devastating feeling, knowing that the bombs are falling on the place where you live, that you have to hide in the shelter, that you have to fear 
fear for your life that the war is now being waged against civilians in the most indiscriminate manner. That is horrifying. We feel grief, we feel anger, we feel sadness, we feel mobilized to help, right? We feel energized, but we feel that our life is not the same as it was before. And until the war is over, I don't think I will feel like the true sense of joy. So we're not even aware of it, that we're watching these shows and these stereotypes. And imagine kids who are growing up, how much it plays on their mind if they're seeing shows that shows that guys can be nerdy, but for girls to be nerdy is really, they're just awkward and they don't have a lot of friends. And maybe on social media, they're not really the most popular girl. That really plays on people and was really prevalent 15, 20 years ago. Over the years, we're seeing a lot more really strong female role models who are good in technology, good in science, good in other aspects. They're just smart women who are just very strong in their ways of thinking and their perspectives and bring a strong point of view that the world needs to know. We have seen this universal nature of straight narratives forever. So the idea that a person can't relate to something because it's not directly about them is a misunderstanding of who's been reading books this whole time. I mean, I certainly grew up on all straight white narratives. Like that was everything that I read in the canon, everything that I read in high school, grade school, all that was straight white narratives. And the idea that I was just like, I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. I just can't really relate to it. You know, it's like, I certainly related to it. That doesn't mean that that's okay to just have one narrative. There's just so much organizing that needs to be done. There's so many needs that need to be met. We need an institution that is there to protect our rights and that every kid in this country knows exists for them. There was this one time this kid was being barred from wearing his articles of faith to school and he was like, my lawyers are going to be here tomorrow. We didn't know the kid, but the kid knew us. He was referring to us when he was telling his administrator so assertively like, no, this is my right. And lo and behold, the next day we were there in school with him to make sure that his rights weren't denied. And that's the feeling that every kid across this country should have. Pursuit of opportunity should not be based off of where we come from, the color of our skin, who we love, who our parents are, when we immigrated here. Like, that's just a human right to be able to progress and move forward. And so, yeah, we should all have lawyers to back us up <laughs> when needed. It's about sacrifice, it's about spirituality, it's about getting closer to God. Ramadan is supposed to be a time to better yourself in many aspects. Whether you want to change bad habits and try to introduce more good habits into your life, whether you want to be kinder, more gracious with people, is supposed to be like a new beginning for many things. We weren't the only Black Muslim family at the masjid, but we were one of few. And I've always had an ear for language. So if I'm listening to Urdu, I'm going to speak the Urdu. You know, if I'm listening to Arabic, I'm going to speak the Arabic. And so a lot of the aunties, I would talk to them and they would look at me like I was crazy. Like, how do you know our language? But I'm just listening to what they're saying and picking up on it. There's a phrase in Farsi which says, someone who is asleep can be woken up, but someone who pretends to be asleep can never be woken. And that's where we find ourselves now in the modern day, because we have the most access to information than we ever have in history. And yet people would prefer to ignore the facts and just base things on their opinions. And it's unfortunate because the truth is right there. And at this point, we're just simply pretending to be asleep. 
Someone knew that I was going to notice this and thought that that was worth the effort. Truly, all I want to do is prove to people that with a little bit extra effort, giving someone that feeling of being recognized is more important than anything else. Because I know how powerful it is. Like it set me on my trajectory to see Kamala Khan. And I could sit here and rant about it on Twitter, but also I'm an artist too. Like if I want something done right, I can just do it myself. And so I just did a 40 minute sketch. And when I woke up the next morning, I was getting emails and phone calls from people who wanted to talk about it. But no one had ever seen an actual Muslim's take on this. There's a lot of misconceptions about Islam. There's a lot of questions about my religion. And I was able to interact with a lot of the public and educate them. I bring them to the mosque. I take that as an opportunity to educate people that you need to first know your source. Have you even met a Muslim in your life? Or is your source just mainly the news? People tend to be afraid of the unknown and they tend to judge you based on the limited knowledge that they have. The most dangerous thing is not the the lack of knowledge is more the illusion of knowledge. So we all need to be educated. We need to have an open mind and we need to embrace the world. My parents sent me to my grandma's house and all her mahjong friends came over and it was like a whole treat and they would just chat about stuff, probably be gossiping about friends or things like that. Sometimes I would just sit next to grandma. She'd let me pick the tiles. I, I would try to play for her sometimes and I get my wrist slapped literally for that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as a kid, just by osmosis, you just kick it up, right? All the things I know about Indian culture come from all of that stuff. Mom and dad cooking Indian food five out of seven nights a week, playing bhajans and Bollywood tunes in the house, the Indian dinner party, all their friends were Indian people. Right. Even though we were removed from the culture, there was just so much saturation of the culture. Yeah. When I think about how I grew up, where the culture and the heritage and the language was passed down. So to your point, just by osmosis, it was just very understood, like something that we all celebrated and everybody knew what those traditions were. As a community, we were engaging with those. I continued to do the accent parts because I was a fan of Peter Sellers and I loved doing accents. And I did Indian characters and I did Iranian characters. I did Arab characters. I did all kinds of characters, trying my best to do the accent correctly. But now, 20-something years in, and the world we're living in, I'm trying to do less parts that require an accent and more parts that will allow me to be me. And sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But in stand-up is also interesting because stand-up allows you to go do the terrorist part in the Chuck Norris movie of the week that I did and then go on stage and make fun of it. It allows you to call them out on it, on creating these parts, and then also make fun of yourself for agreeing to do these parts. So that's the beauty of stand-up. You can say whatever you want. The culture within the state of Kentucky is a huge part of my identity. I want to be able to celebrate that and also celebrate my ancestries, all the traditions that have made me. It's definitely been a very, very big journey that has felt very lonesome because there's so few of us here in Kentucky. The thesis of our show is that one single word, it's the word really because that's the interrogation to perpetually other us. And for us, the flip side of that is using that word as self-reflection to be able to claim the identity for ourselves and be able to say, no, I identify as an American or as a Southerner or as a Kentuckian. If you're gonna show a firefight, show what a firefight is really like. You don't see the other guy. You're firing into the darkness. You're shooting at flashes in the jungle. It's not just heroics. The highest compliment a soldier can pay to another soldier is when he did his job. And it's that sense of duty and responsibility that I found appealing. 
And that's what's appealing to a lot of the readers at the time. I just came up with the basic concept that it was to be very real. I thought that was very important. And I was only concerned with getting the first issue together. And we had no idea where it was going to go, but that's the way it always is. Filipinos love spam. My grandfather would tell the story of how spam got to our family through being a young boy during World War II. I became privy to all of the other Asian cultures that feel a similar ownership. But then I came across the history about spam in the United States. So then that just sent me down this entire rabbit hole. Like wherever you look in the big trends of American history and meatpacking and labor and immigration, I found how little I knew about who was doing these jobs before and why they were no longer doing them. I think it really comes from this place of trust, right? I would never recommend anything that I didn't trust myself or to give to any members of my family. I've been vaccinated, I've been boosted. I do talk about how my family members have been boosted, how my close friends have been boosted. And I think those conversations are really important and really starting from the place of trust in medicine and trust in the people who are there to care for you. A lot of it comes down to understanding that we all have this responsibility to each other. You know, Robin, from a queer perspective and in the world of queer comic nerds, has been coded queer since the beginning. Way back when, in the bad old days when you weren't even allowed to say gay, queer people were still reading comics, still loving them and enjoying them. They just couldn't see themselves in the comics. So they were kind of reading themselves into it. So why would you change Robin to bisexual when he's dated women? Well, it sort of was a no-brainer. It happens to a lot of bisexual people like me who you kind of go along and society is kind of telling you all kinds of straight stuff. And then you suddenly go, uh-oh, um, I have an attraction that's a little bit different. And to me, it just seemed like a natural character development rather than a retconning or someone turning somebody gay. So I didn't have a choice. <laughs> Literally one day I showed up at church and I was the conversation around the pulpit. It came out of shame and guilt that I decided that I wanted to be around Black queer people. This community saved my life. But that decision to be out and leave home, I came out and came to the Black queer communities because I wanted to hide from all of the other part of the world that felt heavy and full of judgment and sad and mean and menacing. I just couldn't understand even at 16 or 17, being in my mind this all-American kid. I was doing all these great things, but nothing was worse than being gay. So it was just this weird relationship with this idea of I'm a bad person because I just like what I like. In terms of where I'm from, I have this hard time answering that question as I get older or as you grow up, because where I was from and home was really where we lived. It's where we made home. As a Caribbean culture, there is a lot of pride. There's a lot of authenticity. I don't know anybody that is Caribbean that isn't unapologetically themselves. It brought awareness to my level of fluidity in love and my sexuality. Basically, there's no confines. And what it taught me was I love a specific type of human being. And because that's consistent in every one of my relationships, but their gender is not consistent. And I just said that that's okay. Like, I can love who I love. Tony Morrison used to say, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you need to write it. 
I didn't have like a book or a TV show or a movie that I could look to and see myself in. You know, I was a half Asian, chubby, closeted kid. Like, who am I looking up to in 1995? Seeing someone that I, I could relate to in some way outside of my world was so important to me because it gave me hope that I was like, oh, I'm not stuck in this awful bubble. And that's why a lot of girls don't get into comics. And that's why it's so refreshing to see Kamala Khan. She's nerdy, she's geeky, she loves her family, she loves her friends. She's just trying to do her thing and pass math class. And yeah, it was just all very relatable. One of the things that actually bother me is her rogues gallery. What do you mean by her rogues gallery? Super villains. Maybe her main villain is time management. Honestly, <laughs> 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 it's really, or just like <laughs> balancing family expectations. Who knows? You can't tell the story of American racism without also telling the story of American religion. I think what's most pernicious about the model minority myth is the temptation it offers to Asian Americans. That at the heart of the American story, and therefore the heart of the Asian American story, is that we should pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we should live lives of upward mobility. That's largely what they've told is the story of immigration in America. Instead of saying, why have we created a society that has such extraordinary forms of inequality and injustice, Instead, we say, oh, it must be because these people are black or brown or yellow or what have you. We do so because it allows us to have the more convenient story, which then lets most of us off the hook. I'm glad we chose this film today because it makes me question so many of my own beliefs, like how much of my understanding of what it means to be a Chinese-American woman came from either things that are reflected in that film that might seem stereotypical, but maybe are culturally true. You know, like so much of the nuances of the mom and daughter relationship and being compared to other people's children. So all of that stuff at that age was super relatable. What I didn't understand at 10 was like the adult part of it. And so as an adult watching it, I'm like, wow, that's just really fucked up. Like, there were not healthy relationships and there were no redeeming qualities about anybody. So maybe that's the part that a lot of people didn't like. She was Indian American and so neither of us would touch our home brought lunches. And then we were like, what's the next best thing we can do? And it was like, we would split a cheeseburger between the two of us. I would eat the meat and the cheese patty and she would eat the bun, lettuce, and pickles. And we would just like put ketchup on everything. And like, we would do that instead of having the lunch that our parents would pack so that we could sort of, you know, have something that was quote unquote more normal. You know, it feels more and more that people are pulling further and further apart from each other. And maybe it's some perspective being the daughter of immigrants who chose to come to this country, but there still like fundamentally remains something really special about America and what um, this country offers um, that's like worth remembering and worth fighting for. For the first time, I was dealing with something where it's like, oh, you've just labeled me when I never had that label before. Whereas my experience and my existence prior to that surrounded by a lot of multiracial kids and families. And it wasn't until I got to college that all of a sudden I was a minority. All of a sudden, there was not a lot of me. And I, I stick out a lot more. But my saving grace was uh, the theater department. I was uh, an actor. I was in uh, a place where there was a massive amount of acceptance because we were all sort of fringe people. So it's like all of a sudden, you're not the only outsider here. We're always called, you're too sensitive, as if it's a problem. Now, as an adult, I know that it's my superpower because I can put my emotions 
into my art and it makes me connect with other people really well. And I want to write a book about that for kids, especially my son, so they know that just because you're shy or introverted doesn't mean you're not just as interesting as the loud kid. You're just yeah. as important. I just want to create a character that all these kids that have felt invisible can see themselves and know that they are beautiful and there's nothing wrong with them. And I wish I had that growing up because I didn't. And I'm sure you guys didn't either growing up in the 80s, 90s. And that needs to stop. It's 2022 for crying out loud. Just looking at pictures of high school, I looked different. That's where I was really trying to be somebody else. We would go to the beach all the time. So I was super tanned and I had color contacts. And of course our hair mm -hmm. was all 80s, but it was lightened. And I specifically remember I wanted to be white. Quite honestly, I wanted to be someone else to fit in with the majority. You would look at the people around you and there wasn't a lot of Asian role models on TV right. or anything you could aspire to. And just looking back recently going, gosh, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But now yeah. that I see it, thank God I grew up being Japanese American, being a woman. It's my superpower now. I have my own story. What I'm trying to teach to my kids, I don't feel like, oh, let's all try to be somebody else. It really tugs at your heart and the shared experience of growing up with dual cultures, triple cultures, however many you may have, right? And so by that, Roman, you mentioned how you called your dad right after you saw it the first time in the movie theater. And for many of us, right, this movie speaks to that. Like how many times were we maybe embarrassed about our food that we were having as teenagers? We just wanted American food, right? And we wanted to fit in. And that's what this movie did for me. Like it reminded me of those experiences myself and then also my big moment of recognizing all that my parents had gone through. I've read the book and I saw the film when it first came out and whatever I thought of the film 20 years ago is completely different when we were young. This time around I really did resonate so much with the mom like I felt like she was drawing us in to her emotional world at every single stage, from the moment that she first met her husband, to moving to a new country and navigating all of that. Like, it felt like she was finally fulfilled when she had her children and we saw them growing up, but then they grow up and they leave. And at every moment, that loneliness was pervasive, right? The finance people wanted to be with creative people. The creative people wanted to be with finance people. And I saw that combination. Clients were like, this is the guy who want to have fun and actually make records of substance. This is the guy to work with. So I just did that. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be the guy that works at a company for 30 years. And then my entire identity is gone. So I ended up writing a book, four books, actually. And to my office mates, I said, how do you do all this stuff? You got to find the intersection points. For a while, I actually thought I was white. I felt white. I knew I looked different, but didn't really notice it until kids started pointing it out. I think it was not until kindergarten or first grade, there was a more self-awareness. I'm not like everybody else. I'm different. That's when I started to be like, being Chinese is actually very beautiful. It was time for me to be proud of who I am. It'd be such a shame for me to just hide a part of me. If you can't embrace who you are, how can you embrace others? So I think up to the day when I was able to be like, you know what, I'm just gonna eat what I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna have small eyes and you know what, I love it. 
Politics is all about empathy. People believing that you understand their plight, their issue, their environment, their daily life, that you understand it and that you have a plan to help them. Growing up, I never saw someone with my name achieve success in politics or government. I would tell people, you know, I'm interested in running for office. And people would tell me, are you crazy? You know, your name is Aftab, which is not a strong ballot name, right? You should consider changing your name to Al or to Adam. Those people were trying to be helpful, but obviously being told that you don't have the right name, you should stop before you start, was challenging. I realized this is what good therapy is. This is what bad therapy is. This is what I've been missing for 15 years of my life. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life because there were no therapists of color that I saw. There were a lot of things that came up that had to do with my culture that required a lot of explaining. When I started talking about it with my community, I realized I wasn't alone in this. I wasn't the only person going through this, but rather quite a few people in my community who have experienced similar things they just don't have access to the resources. So what can I do to make sure that they do? For the longest time, I felt like I couldn't really talk about my Lebanese identity or Arabic music with people who weren't of the community. It was very difficult. And then on the flip side, we'd go to Lebanon and I was nicknamed the American and that would justify being American. And then suddenly I'm like, no, wait a second, I love George Bush. Then I'm like, wait a second, what's happening? Why am I saying this? Right. And it's such a weird thing that you start to navigate is you're questioned in both of the places that you consider home. And that's tough for anyone, but I think especially for people who are younger, who are going through all sorts of changes. And so definitely felt like I had to hide pieces of that to people who just wouldn't understand. There's a lot of distrust in our system because I think depending on what you listen to, what you want to hear, you can find anything that you want to find on the internet to support yeah. your point of view. So it becomes critical for physicians to have open, honest conversations with patients and their caregivers to say, help me understand why you're fearful of getting this vaccine mm -hmm. and, and truly meeting people where they are. Will anything change? Because I don't use the word lightly. It feels like an apartheid state. One of the things that really struck me is you see very clearly how these institutions, these laws are not built to just to oppress people, but it legitimizes the oppression. And that's actually incredibly horrifying. And there's a fatigue to all of these atrocities. But I think that's what makes Sacco's work so important is that it's not just a list of atrocities. It is a very deep dive into what happened to specific people, who they were before, who they were after, how they come out, how their thinking has evolved. You can't look away from it. Like, if we continue to look away from it, the problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse and harder to solve. I don't know if there is a solution. Reading a comic book isn't going to solve a <laughs> piece in the Middle East. But I do think part of the solution is understanding both sides. When I spent a lot of time reading about historical figures, about John Lewis, voting rights activists in the South, like Fannie Lou Hamer, you realize that this country, unfortunately, has always had moments like this, and it's been a lot worse. And if they can stand up and say that they're going to keep on fighting and they're going to make sure that people have the right to vote, that people have equal access to education, that Black communities have fair representation, then who am I to say that I'm tired and I can't take it?
when you have a question or you have a need and you go looking for the answer, having the awareness that this is your journey and you can take a pause and ask yourself how you're feeling, how the information is making you feel, whether you got the perspective that you were looking for. Oftentimes, our experience with information online can feel like we're just consuming whatever is out there and, and we go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's really critical for us to maintain that awareness of what we were looking for and own that journey. When I first started at National Journal, I was the only Black person in the company for a good period of time. And the perspective that I took is that I just need to keep my head down. I needed to be the most excellent employee that the organization had because if I wasn't, I would not be judged equally. Now, whether that was true or perceived, I don't know, but that certainly was a perspective that I was going against. So I was very focused on the job. I didn't go to happy hours. So I spent a large part of the first part of my career conforming to what I thought I had to be to rise through the ranks in corporate America. I kept walking towards the elevator, pressed the button. We were wearing masks and all of that. And a few minutes later, she ended up in the same elevator bank and she saw us again and then she stopped again and she refused to go any farther. And so the elevator came, the doors opened, my husband and I entered, the doors closed. And I looked at him and I was like, is that because, and he looked at me and he was like, yeah, welcome to my world. And I was like, oh my God, I've experienced people unfortunately responding to my husband in that way because he's a black guy walking down the street, but I had never experienced someone responding to me that way. And it was just this moment of not feeling safe. The thing that Chinese people have been going through in the last years, I think all of us have had the moment, right? And 9-11 for brown people was that. I have a beard out of laziness, but I became clean shaven every time I traveled. Whenever I would come back in the country from a backpacking trip, I'd always pack a clean shirt for the Atlanta airport. When I'm saying thank you to the customs agent, the Southern charm comes out when I need to disarm. And I hate that I have to do that, but it's a survival mechanism. The people that actually have a negative side effect to these vaccines are very, very few as compared to the overall population that may have some pain in their arm, may feel the sniffles for a couple of days and then they're just fine. So I would encourage people to think about how we think about risk in our daily lives. We have more risk of death when we cross the street or drive a car than we do with the COVID vaccine. Yet, we've gone through this whole sigmoid curve of low resistance to the vaccine, listening to anecdotal evidence by people, other aunties and uncles that we might know, kind of, sort of, that had a thing or two happen, even though nothing has happened to us, right? Ultimately, the people that may be affected by some of these negative externalities are very, very few in comparison to the broader population that is ultimately saved from the effects of long COVID and other fatal impacts. I want to say this pandemic is this inevitable thing, but it's this new normal. And we can spend time with family. We are going to see family over the holidays. And I can't wait to see them. And we're all vaccinated and we're taking tests and we'll mask up on the drive down and all these things. But Mm -hmm. it's because of these vaccines. Like, we can have a normal life. We can see our family. We can see our friends. We cannot go to Weezer concerts and go to company holiday parties. (laughs) Yeah, it's peace of mind. But we're in a place now where it's totally normal. It is. It's almost like brushing your teeth. Like, you just, you got to do it. Just got to do it. What happens is we as women and as women of color are not allowed the same ability and or grace to mess up, to get angry, to set standards, 
And I feel like that is really where we need to develop. None of us are infallible. 